Welcome to another episode of What They Aren't Telling You podcast. Today, we're going to talk about the debate surrounding melatonin and how it can be used for immune system health. I am bringing to you something very interesting today that um, I've been researching because I was advised to go down this road for my symptoms with my health issue. And it got me thinking the more I did research, I was like, wow, this is a lot of information that I did not know. So today's topic is about high dose melatonin and the use of melatonin specifically for viral illnesses for COVID-19 and what they term long haul COVID. Surprisingly, there was so much data on this and there was a lot of data on this prior to even 2020. Um, There's a great research scientist who has a PhD who is like the specialist of all things melatonin, who's been writing books and and doing research articles, over a thousand of them, um, for decades. And he has been on this understanding of the benefits of high-dose melatonin, but there's such a debate around this, which has really pushed it off to the side And then yet when 2020 came around, they started looking at how melatonin could be used to prevent severe sickness in people with COVID-19. So if you guys are like me, you've heard a variety of things, especially in the natural, um, well, actually both Western medicine and in alternative medicine. When you talk about melatonin, there are a lot of people that go, you shouldn't be messing with melatonin. It's a hormone. Okay, that's one of the things that's said a lot is it's a hormone. I'm going to talk about in the next uh, episode because there's just, I have like too many articles. Um, I can't, the second pile I can't even get into, but that one is going to be that particular PhD guy I was talking about and an entire breakdown of whether or not melatonin really is a hormone because it doesn't operate like a hormone. And so the understanding amongst the community of just everybody is like, oh, melatonin is a hormone, so you don't want to supplement with it because it's going to prevent your ability to continue producing melatonin in, you know, effective amounts. And what I will say from my research that I've done on this is this is a very outdated mindset. This is an old school mentality and possibly it's from a lack of understanding for what melatonin actually does. Overall, we've got this general view of one, melatonin's a hormone. Two, it's dangerous to supplement with it because it's going to impede your own body's ability to produce it. That it's sort of like a crutch, you know, it, it, it gets in the way again of your body's ability to do what it's supposed to do. Overall, most of what I've heard is pretty negative. It's pretty like, you know, like this is not a good thing. Stay away from this. And last year I was having severe, severe sleep problems. And of course, melatonin is one of the first things that comes up as it relates to sleep supplements. But all of my alternative practitioners were kind of like, you want to get off the melatonin. And I remember thinking to myself like, oh, this is a crutch. I have to just wean myself off of it. 
But there was one hormone specialist that I went to and she had a sleep adaptogen combination that she gave to her perimenopausal and postmenopausal and menopausal women. And it had 10 milligrams of melatonin in it. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, that's way too much. From what I've heard, you can only go up to three milligrams and that's like tapping out. Well, this particular supplement had 10 milligrams. And I remember saying to her, um, from what I hear, this is not a good idea. And she said, you know what, believe it or not, there's a lot of research that high-dose melatonin, this was considered high-dose, um, can help prevent things like breast cancer. And I admit, because she's kind of like a traditional Western, I don't even know, maybe she's not totally traditional, but she is more traditional than, more Western than who I usually see. And so I think my instinct at the beginning was like, all right, she doesn't maybe know what she's talking about. And I, and I kind of pushed it away. And I still believed this I'm going to have to wean myself off of melatonin because it's dangerous to my system somehow. Well, over time, I think I was taking between three to six milligrams, like in a couple of different things, like this thing had one and a half, this one had one and a half. And each thing kind of had, I kind of made my own concoction over the many months of my dabbling with insomnia because luckily it's gotten better, but it was really, really rough. And so I tried everything that you can imagine. And I tried a, a bunch of different combinations. And so uh, it's really hard to avoid things with melatonin. Um, they're even in C certain CBD products. And it didn't seem to upset me in any way, but I, it didn't improve my sleep immediately either. So I wasn't really on team melatonin at all. Well, one of the alternative practitioners that um, I currently see noticed that after I got sick two months ago, I had this really big flare-up of symptoms again. And last month was really bad. Like I had, a, you know, four or five day period there where I was almost going to go to the hospital. And this was a few weeks after having been sick with whatever is going around. I don't test for these things, but I can just assume it was something related to one of these off engineered, you know, viruses, whatever, whatever's out there. And I was really, really flared. So for those of you who deal with chronic symptoms or you deal with like POTS or um, mast cell or histamine or even mold and Lyme toxicity and exposure, autoimmune diseases, these kinds of things tend to flare in certain circumstances. Sometimes it's certain times of the month for us women, and sometimes it is surrounding periods of illness. Even if your body manages the illness okay without interventions, it can really throw you backwards in your progress and really make you like, you know, worried that you've got these new symptoms and things are not gonna get better. It's like, it really takes you, it feels like a, a complete setback. So last month for me was a really bad period of time. And it was about a month after being sick. And so looking back, I can see how I had a lot of my very initial symptoms come back again. Things I had gotten rid of or felt like I had moved on from were returning. And it was really triggering for me because if you've had these types of mysterious chronic illnesses, when you re-experience a symptom that was painful for you 
to go through the first time. And I don't mean like just physical pain. I mean like it was shocking, traumatizing, caused anxiety, panic attacks, you know, because it was something that really terrified you, something that you'd never experienced before and became chronic or episodic. Well, when you move on past that and then something like that happens again, it's like it throws you into a mental loop because you're now re-experiencing something you thought you had healed from or moved on past. And it can be really emotionally challenging. And that can bring up the anxiety again, even if you'd really moved past that as well. And it was just a really, it was a rough time. And I know many of you who deal with chronic illness, you know what that is. You know what these flare-ups and episodes look like and how discouraging they can be when it feels like you've been on an upward track and you feel like you've seen progress and then these things happen. Well, one of the biggest things that can trigger that is having an illness, a cold, a virus, a chest cold, any kind of immune assault can give you almost like an allergic reaction to your body again and then your body starts turning on itself right and this is what happened to me well the practitioners i'm working with have you know been working with me for months and i think i'm a little bit of a conundrum for many of them that includes functional chiropractors it includes those who do net neuro emotional technique those who are in acupuncture Typically, I think they feel like they can get a pinpoint on what somebody's things are, but mine, they fluctuate and it feels like there's no real rhyme or reason. Needless to say, when I really hit, you know, some pretty severe symptoms last month, um, it was including very, very severe adrenal fatigue, like where it was like almost on the border of adrenal insufficiency. I I was very weak, very tired. And it was suggested to me at this point to try high-dose melatonin. Now, what's interesting about high-dose melatonin, and this is, this is going to sound shocking possibly to some of you, but high-dose melatonin can be easily up to 100 milligrams a day. In some of these studies, they did up to 300 milligrams a day. There are studies where they did over 1,000 milligrams a day for two months straight. And what's so interesting about this, considering the history that we have heard about melatonin, so in our minds, melatonin has a risk, it's dangerous, you want to get off of it, you need a wean, you can't be on it, right? Like that's the, that's what we hear about melatonin. All of these research studies, and there have been, I'm guessing, hundreds if not thousands at this point because they've been studying melatonin for a while. There have never been severe, any severe side effects reported in any of the studies, including those who had 1,000 to 2,000 milligrams a night for extended periods of time. And granted, it's not only used at night, it's actually also used during the day. And one thing I found really interesting that I'll go into on the next one is melatonin actually does not make you sleepy. It only gets activated with the absence of light. So you can take it in divided doses during the day for this immune support. Now they're using this for things like cancer treatment, very severe post-viral illnesses, and other types of things where your immune system becomes suppressed. 
they're using high dose melatonin and they do it in nighttime doses, but also in daytime doses. And my first instinct was like, you can't take this during the day. You're going to be like a walking zombie, right? Because I did try, what's that called? That sleeping medication, trazodone. When this first happened to me and when the insomnia portion first happened to me, I went to the ER and the doctor gave me trazodone. Well, I took that at the hospital on my way home and by and I live like 15 minutes away. By the time I got home, I felt so out of it. Like I and this was like the lowest dose of trazodone that you can have. I could barely walk up my front steps and I remember just falling into the bed and just being like I felt so weird and then when I woke up in the morning, I still felt so out of it and I felt kind of sick all day and this happened for the two days that I took it. <laughs> By day three, it didn't work anymore. And so that was the end of it for me. That is a type of drowsy, they call it, they say, a lot of these say they're non-drowsy, but they really are. These types of sleep medications or sleep support medications, these are, you know, straight pharmaceuticals, um, often cause a really, really bad hangover effect. And to the point where you can't really get through your day very well at all. And imagine, you know, working. And I know some people that take trazodone every day and their body's gotten used to it and all that. But for me, it was brand new and my body was not having it. So that was my first instinct when I heard about high dose melatonin. I was like, oh God, I'm not going to be able to function if I feel like a zombie all day long. Well, then I started doing some research on it and to find out it actually isn't something that makes you sleepy. It only makes you sleepy in darkness. In other words, you can actually take this during the day and it's not going to have any effect on you, which is so fascinating to me because I had never heard anything about this, right? Well, so I started researching this and I have some really good information from that PhD who's, this is kind of like his entire wheelhouse. He's published, I think, close to 1,700 research articles on melatonin, high-dose melatonin, and the benefit. He himself takes 100 milligrams a night. He decides that amount based on body weight. So for women, it would be more about 60 to 70 a night. So anyway, as I was going through, and right now, currently, I'm only doing 20. I tried 60 one night. I tried 40 a couple nights. It, it was kind of interrupting my sleep a little bit. And I am so traumatized from last year that I, I get nervous about that. So either I'll work my way up or maybe 20 milligrams will be enough. Many of the research articles I'm going to talk about here um, talk about anywhere, you know, between 5 to 20. So you don't necessarily need a ton for regular immune support. But if you're dealing with something severe, severe COVID, post-viral illness, something with neuroinflammation, cancer, or something severe like that, then the dosing is going to be much higher. And there are traditional medical doctors that I'll go into next time that are using this treatment and they are finding that it is stopping the growth of tumors. So... Just by using high-dose melatonin, they can see the denial of the replication of these invasive cells that are coming in. And that's the same theory that they are using and have seen with positive results with co severe COVID-19 patients. 
What's interesting about this, I don't know if whoever's on right now, I don't know if you guys were following me back at the beginning of 2020 when COVID first happened, but at the beginning of 2020, there was discussion about the reason that SARS-CoV-1 and SARS-CoV-2 did not affect children there was some discussion that the reason that was true was because they have hired melatonin. And I remember talking about this back then. I had read and, but I never followed up with that after that fact. I mean, it was a shit show. So we kind of all got lost in, you know, what became 2020 and after. The initial reports from international medical professionals, this was not coming from like, you know, the Fauci reports and um, the White House briefings, they weren't talking about melatonin. But I did hear, and this is very early on, like February, March of 2020, they said one of the hypotheses about why children were not affected was because they had higher melatonin. And as you age, you lose your ability to produce melatonin naturally. And then they were looking at the elderly being at the highest risk. Well, what I found today and in my early research, earlier research, is that is true of all respiratory viruses and respiratory illnesses. And this is super fascinating because these scientists are basically suggesting, and these are peer-reviewed medical literature scientists. This, we're, we're not talking about alternative websites. Everything that I'm going through here are, these are th like real publications in traditional Western medical journals. But they are suggesting that that reduction of melatonin over time is really what causes the increased mortality. And that if we can help supplement our body's melatonin, we can actually make ourselves less susceptible to all illnesses, especially viral illnesses and respiratory illnesses. So when we look at susceptible groups and the focus being on, you know, stopping this mortality, um, because illness isn't really the issue, right? It's illness and then severe outcomes from illness. It's the body's not, the body's inability to handle the illness. So Illness isn't the issue. What we want to look at is how can we help support our own body in making sure the illness stays here, which is manageable, and doesn't move itself into the territory where we have these secondary complications. Everything that I'm reading on melatonin is talking about what an amazing immune support it is. And like I said, in the additional episode that I'll do uh, from the one, one's a medical doctor and one is the PhD guy. In those articles, they talk about how it's not really a hormone at all. In fact, it's really our greatest antioxidant. And it goes after free radicals in the body. It goes after things that are toxic to our system naturally. It improves the cellular health at a mitochondria level. And that is the basis of really all devastation from illness inflammation and all of the side effects that come from illness come from what they talk about with oxidative stress and how melatonin naturally reduces the burden of oxidative stress in the body, even like I said, in doses as low as 5, 10, 20 milligrams. The best part about this is there are almost no side effects associated with melatonin. So despite what we've been told, 
the side the side effects might be feeling a little dizzy, sometimes a little nauseous, a little sleepy. And that is usually if you've kind of increased your dosing too quickly. Now, granted, if you have a severe respiratory illness that is worsening, you would take feeling sleepy or a little nauseous if it was keeping your body from going into like a secondary bacterial infection. What's crazy is they found out that even those people in, that were experiencing COVID that were intubated on ventilators had much less oxidative stress and less side effects and adverse events of the intubation itself on the lungs. So all across the board, they're seeing melatonin actually support the body and support the immune system. This, the discussion around melatonin really trips me out because to be honest, it was pretty much consensus to stay away from it. And this wasn't even one of those ones where it's like half and half. I found very few proponents of melatonin. And what I'm finding is it seems, not to use the word misinformation, but it seems like people have heard or believed one particular thing and then they kind of just kept that belief and never investigated it further. And I was probably one of those too. This just goes to show you the importance of reevaluation on a scientific basis. There is no such thing as this is finished, we figured it out, it's totally done, here's what we've decided about this topic, right? Like you can't, when it comes to science, when it comes to something that is dynamic like that, we have to leave room to reevaluate. We have to leave room to go back to the information and look at it differently from a different perspective and to take in new information to have a different context for what our conclusion might be on something. If you say you're a scientist, this is the basis of science. And yet we have found so many people that are hashtag science believers who are so narrow in their belief, there's no room for them to expand and there's definitely not room for them to change their minds. So what we see instead is that doubling down. It's like, I'm gonna dig my heels in and this is the hill I'm gonna die on. It shouldn't be that way because that kind of goes against the very nature of investigative endeavors. When we want to really look into something and we wanna um, analyze and assess and you know, make up our minds on something, we need a really vast section of information to, to choose from. We need to have that so that we are making sure we're looking at this from every angle. And I noticed that's not always the easiest thing for people. A lot of people like see it from one perspective. They, they don't know how to zoom out and look at the bigger picture. It's, that's not an easy thing for everyone. And we find in the medical community, um, they can be very rigid in their belief system. People that are experts, medical professionals can be so rigid. Like I was told this back in medical school in 1982. And so therefore I'm gonna always believe this one fact. And when you present something different, a lot of times that is like challenging their knowledge. It's like, 
what do you what do you think that you can come to me as the expert and t- and teach me something new? I'm here to teach you. And the funny part about that is true people who in, in all areas, not just medicine, but true wisdom in any area, it could be spiritual, it could be whatever. Like wisdom comes from the understanding that you never have it all figured out. You have to stay open. You have to stay open to the possibility, at least. The second you close yourself off, you really reduce your capacity to grow with new information. And that's hard. It can be really hard if you've been in a certain field for a long time and you're just like very drilled in. And I think that's why we... That's why we come across so many medical professionals that like get really heated about this stuff. And many mothers know that when you go to your pediatrician to discuss medical interventions, they are instantly defensive. It's like you're questioning what they feel is the decades worth of experience that they have gained, which is why you're coming to see them in that field. And I, and I get that. However, things change. And what was true 20 years ago is not always true today. Sometimes what was true one year ago is not true today. So even as students of holistic healthcare or natural healthcare, even as alternative practitioners, we all need to stay open to the possibility that new information may come out that contradicts something we once believed even if it contradicts something we once told our patients about, if you are a practitioner. We have to be okay with that though, because in the end, what matters is benefit to the person. It doesn't matter if this is different than what you always believed. It doesn't matter if you had to change your mind. What matters is that the patient or the person gets relief, relief from their symptoms, relief from their episodes, their conditions, whatever, whatever they're going through, getting back to a state of balance and homeostasis is all that matters. So this particular example is, is interesting because I was on the other side of the fence for this one too. And my guess is many of you, when you first heard me talk about it, and many of you now listening to the podcast episode are like a little tense going, eh, I don't know about this one. I usually agree with her, but I'm not sure about this one because my so-and-so told me this, you know. And all I can say is that I found so much, I found so much research on this that I could not, I probably won't be able to put this into even two episodes because there is so much on this. And it's in both the alternative world and also in the traditional Western medical world. So this is not uh, a foo-foo belief. <laughs> and, um, and it's real. Uh, there's a lot of real data here. So I suggest we all do our best to stay open to it. And I was skeptical at the beginning as well. But what shocked me most is considering how many years this research has been out there. And even more concerning This knowledge about it treating COVID-19 was available April of 2020, and it just fizzled out. It never took off. It never went anywhere. 
And what these studies are concluding basically is saying we could very greatly reduce the number of deaths associated with this pandemic. Uh, and not just this, with all respiratory illnesses. Respiratory illnesses are going to be, on the illness side of things, your number one cause of complications, bacterial infections, and ultimately death. We're looking at, they estimate between 60 to 70,000 deaths a year that are coming from respiratory viruses. And that includes the flu, but influenza itself is actually a very small percentage of that. We've got a ton of unnamed respiratory viruses. But respiratory viruses tend to behave the same way in the body, no matter what the name of it is. So if you can reduce the risk of a respiratory virus on your system with something that has no side effects, is super low cost, and actually is not operating like a treatment in the sense that it's masking your symptoms, but instead is operating like a pathway to allow your body to get rid of the oxidative stress because it is an antioxidant, why wouldn't we be utilizing this for everyone? Okay, so the first article, now this was a San Diego article. This was actually in January of last year, so January 2022. Okay, the title of this, Melatonin Helps People with Severe COVID Recover. How about long haulers? So this is early 2022 was sort of when we started having that discussion about uh, long haul COVID. And, you know, I, I've heard both sides of this. Some people were like, oh, that's not even a thing. Some people are attributing it to everything and using that as a proponent for getting the vaccine, which I don't agree with. Regardless, the discussion of long haul COVID started coming up early 2022. So now we're in late 2023. It's been something you hear about a little more. And I think really what it is, is post-viral illness, which is already a thing that was a thing that existed long before pandemic. It's basically this concept that a virus comes into the body. And while your body's going through your traditional immune response and trying to handle that infection, it triggers some latent genetic, dormant, things in the body that start getting the body attacking itself. As you know, and, and as I was told in my early issues last year, my health issues, when I was, when it was decided that it was most likely vestibular neuritis that I was experiencing, vestibular neuritis is based on the same concept of a viral illness basically getting into the inner ear or at some point getting there and causing your body to trip out a little bit uh, and trigger a bunch of vestibular disorder symptoms, which are like balance, vestibular migraines, sensitivity to light, sound, all these different things. It's, it's a long list. Um, that's one example. But viruses can trigger and illnesses can trigger a lot of things within the body that go on for many, many months long after your illness has stopped. So this is not a new phenomenon. This is something that, you know, medicine has been aware of for a really long time. They're calling it long COVID because, again, I think that there initially was a desire to say, hey, for those of you who think you can just go ahead and get the virus and avoid the vaccine and be okay, here's something you need to worry about. But my theory on this is that 
because of the engineered nature of this particular thing, it's causing our body to respond differently than it would usually. As a result, it's triggering all sorts of autonomic nervous system issues. And um, that's not for everyone. Some people have had it multiple times with nothing. And um, it's also happening in those who've had the vaccine. Something about whatever all this is, is tipping a lot of people over. I've said this before. This concept of long haul COVID has been, you know, in the news, mostly starting last year. It says multiple studies have found the sleep aid melatonin helps patients with severe COVID-19 recover. Now early data on animals offers a glimmer of hope that it might benefit long haulers experiencing neurological symptoms as well. Now it says melatonin is a hormone produced by the body, but again, there is scientific debate on whether or not it really is or should be classified a hormone because it does not behave like one. It is most famous for its impact on the circadian rhythm, but doctors have long known it also has antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties. I, I think it's funny when I'm hearing this now, like doctors have long known this, like prior to COVID, why was nobody talking about utilizing this for other viral illnesses or respiratory illnesses or other immune onslaughts with the body? Like why, I don't understand why this was not a common discussion. Clearly, doctors have long known about these antioxidant, anti-inflammatory properties. Why haven't we known about this? See, this is the kind of stuff nobody talks about in medicine because instead they want to just peddle a vaccine. Here's your solution to immune system issues instead of like, oh no, here's something natural you can put in your system. It says out of control inflammation is one of the hallmarks of severe COVID-19. So scientists set their sights on melatonin supplements as a potential therapy early in the pandemic. Early in the pandemic, they're saying, you've got scientists going, oh, we should utilize melatonin as a potential therapy for COVID in the pandemic, the beginning of this. And some of these other articles will show you that because they're, you know, April 2020. But this stuff like never made the news back then. Like this should be part of a checklist that doctors should have had online for you to download. Here are the vitamins you need to take. Here's what you should do. If like this was never discussed. It was more of lockdown, stay at home. And then, you know, the vaccine's coming. Uh, they never talked about this, but this was a discussion in the scientific community. It just, we were completely kept out of that discussion. Like the citizens, the ones who are susceptible and at risk seems ridiculous to me when all this information was out there. And even myself investigating this and even being in a holistic community, this still was not part of the discussion. Now, I know it was part of um, lower dose melatonin at three milligrams, I think was part of the COVID protocol by the frontline doctors, I believe. But even, even then, it wasn't talked about why, why it was in there and what it does for the body and, and that there were no side effects from it. Again, people see melatonin on that list and they go, oh no, I can't take this. So I'm gonna, maybe I'll skip that one and just take these. But there's a reason that you would utilize that. And even Western medicine scientists knew that reason, but we didn't. Like we were not given that information, which is absurd to me because it's here. 
It's here in a plethora of research articles. So they said in October 2021, a clinical trial involving 150 hospitalized COVID patients in Iraq found that those taking just 10 milligrams of melatonin each night before bed had a lower risk of COVID-related blood clots, sepsis, and death. So they had in the groups uh, out of the people that died, only one of the hospitalized patients that died had melatonin, and there were 13 deaths that were hospitalized in the control group, which was without the melatonin. 13 to 1. Now, obviously, that's a very small study, but this is one of many. This was in Iraq. Again, this is just 10 milligrams, which is a little bit lower than I think what they would probably recommend when you're, ha- when if you're hospitalized, some of the recommendations can be up to 100 to 200 to 300 milligrams. So it's possible that 10 milligrams just wasn't enough. But look at what it is specifically helping with. It's helping with COVID-related blood clots. This makes me wonder if people that have had the vaccine, especially those who didn't really want to take it but felt forced to take it, could be utilizing this treatment to help their own susceptibility to blood clots. So blood clots, sepsis, which again is your body's essentially becoming toxic. And it, when sepsis happens, it's like almost immediate that you, you know, go towards death. It's really a short period of time. So if this can stop blood clots, sepsis, and death, just at 10 milligrams a night, Think about the implications if this was utilized in everybody that was infected or ill. Now, I did talk about briefly, where did I talk about? I think this was on the vaccine conversation video series with Dr. Bob. There's been such an increase in anti-anxiety supplements and sleep support supplements, such an increase over the last couple of years, because this whole process has thrown everybody off kilter um, in a physical way, also an emotional, mental way. So we saw these melatonin supplements increased, but not for the reasons that we're talking about here. Melatonin started increasing because people were not sleeping, because people were freaking out about what was going on in the world. And they would be increasing sleep support or sleep aids. So we saw melatonin increase, but what we didn't see was the use of higher dose melatonin for immune support. It's even discussed in here that the use of melatonin on a regular basis can prevent you from getting infected. Again, I think that the lower dose three milligrams probably not going to cut it. It probably needs to be at least around that 10 milligram point. Um, So the IRAC study was one of them. It says a retrospective study in Spain found that hospitalized COVID patients who received melatonin early had a nearly 40% lower risk of death. 40%. That is such a statistically significant number. We're not saying this is like some small time thing. Reducing your chances of death by 40% by taking something that just has an antioxidant role and response in your body is significant. This should have been the protocol for every single patient that was hospitalized. This should have been the suggestion from every doctor 
that was dealing with a patient who was ill. This information has been out for such a long time. They could have utilized this way before the death toll started increasing. And when people talk about the death toll with COVID, they often use it to talk about how grave and serious this pandemic has been. They will quote millions of people, you know, dead because of COVID. And I would venture to say that that's misleading because I believe, based on very significant research, that it was the way we treated, we as government-led or entity-led institutions, I would venture to say it was the way we treated COVID that caused such poor outcomes. It was not COVID itself. Maybe in, maybe in small numbers of cases it was. But I think the majority of the deaths and adverse outcomes came from the way hospitals were given directives to respond. Initially, that started with ventilators, which I think was a huge mistake. I get why they went in that direction. They were looking at things like severe pulmonary disease, and how they had used ventilators in the past with people whose lungs were failing them. But they quickly found out that the way the lungs were affected with this operated in an opposite way, where that tissue became thinner, not thicker, and the force of the ventilators blew out people's lungs. I mean, it's really sad because I think of all of the probably hundreds of thousands of people at this point that easily may have survived. And it's not because, at least on that lower level, the, the hospital staff, I, I think they truly were thinking they were doing the right thing. But the directives they were getting were short-sighted, and it was like they weren't listening to doctors that were trying to kind of be whistleblowers on this. Then we get remdesivir and these other medications that were used and, and medications that were banned that also, I think, contributed to people dying. Not the virus itself, but how it was handled. So when we look at something as cheap as melatonin, low enough doses that are easy to get, an extremely positive safety profile that makes this for all ages. I mean, granted, kids already have higher levels of melatonin, so you wouldn't supplement them with this. And that's why they're not hospitalized with COVID often, because their bodies just know how to handle this better. But let's say adults and older, including elderly, it's an extremely safe thing to utilize to help the body handle the burden, the immune burden of this respiratory attack. Again, not just for COVID. Flu, it's, we, there's an article in here that talks about the use of melatonin um, already with methodology using it for RSV. So this has been something that's been utilized and been studied, and it should have been all over the news. And many would say it's almost as if they didn't want us to be armed with the information that we needed. Because remember, 
the higher that death toll, the more ammunition they had to take actions limiting freedoms of the citizens, to promote the vaccine, and to just essentially have more control over the population. And I know that sounds really pessimistic, but I can't, I can't help but go down that road based on everything that we've seen. I'm going to wind down this episode on melatonin part one and stay tuned soon, hopefully the end of this week, for part two. I'm also going to have a part three where I break down the actual specific science based on those doctors who specialize in this field entirely. And that's going to be a little more medical theory as it relates to melatonin. Lots of other cool topics coming up as well. Thanks for joining me on this episode of What They Aren't Telling You.